this week on Writers Inc. But on this third book that I've been writing, um, I got to a point in um, the book where I was just kind of stuck. And I was like, what? What do I, you know, where does this go? And that trip that you referenced, the trip to Savannah that I recently took, um, once I got down there, it was just something about being in that location and the sights and sounds and smells of Savannah. I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly what I need to do. And I pounded out maybe like five or 6,000 words one day just from being in there. And so I was kind of like, maybe I need to switch it up from time to time. But that worked out really well for me because I, you know, was sitting here in this room and I was just kind of like stuck on pause. So it kind of helped me get unplugged. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Uh, there's so many jokes to make about Zach not being here because he's at the zoo that it's almost <laughs> not even worth making the joke, right? Well, you know, he did lay off. He didn't mention your foot once that last week when you weren't here. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I think we should cut him a break. Okay. All right. So there'll be no, there'll be no jokes about Zach getting locked in a gorilla cage or nothing like that. Nothing like that unless we come up with a good one. <laughs> Oh, what's going on, man? It feels like it's been forever since we talked. Yeah, it's it's been a crazy week. Um, so I I don't know if anybody's read this yet, but there's been some layoffs over at HarperCollins, and I've got a couple books over there, including my 4MK series. Um, so I lost my editor over there. Um, oh. So typically what ends up happening is I get an email from my agent, from Kristen, saying, hey, so-and-so is no longer with this publisher. Um, and I try to get in touch with that publisher is to find out what they're where they're going next and you know help them out. You know, Because I, I know a lot of people in the industry, so sometimes I kind of have my ear to the ground and I know where openings and stuff are. Um, so I like to get that conversation going. And then I usually get an email you know, right after that one from whoever my new editor is introducing themselves. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, where I'm running into a snag is um, my 4MK series was in Kindle Unlimited, and right now it's not. Um, so one of the things that we had agreed with back when um, the books were published with HMH, um, it, that it, it would actually they would stay in Kindle Unlimited. Um, HMA followed, HMH followed through on that, but then HMH got bought out by HarperCollins. Um, HarperCollins kept them in KU up until, I guess, about a month ago. And my last editor was actually working on getting them back in. So now she's gone and I've got somebody new and I'm trying to explain all this to them. Um, and HarperCollins has very few, if, if any, other books in KU. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a weird thing. Like nobody really understands it. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of layoffs there. I mean, just in talking to editors and people at the other companies, you know, the, the other, you know, top four, top five, whatever's left now, you know, everybody's kind of shaking in their boots because, you know, they, they see this happening to them next. Um, you know, and nobody's immune to it. What, what is your, what, what's sort of your high altitude perspective on this? I mean, is, is this just the future of publishing? Is, is this, that's what's happening or is there something else going on here? 
I, I mean, honestly, I think it's the same thing we've been talking about. You know, if you look at any publisher's roster at this point, the same names have been on there for the last 15, 20 years as their their big money makers um, with very new, you know, very few debuts, or, you know, new people coming out. They're just they're relying on that, you know, the, the same cattle to keep, you know, feeding everybody else over and over and over again. And, and those people are getting older. Um, the younger people that are coming up, a lot of them are looking at, you know, you know, some of them aren't even considering the, the big publishers anymore. They're going straight to the indie route, you know, which is totally fine. Um, other ones are doing the hybrid thing, but it's, you know, it, it's a, a very different conversation than it was 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and I think at this point it's, it's starting to hit them in the, in, you know, in the wallet. Mm. So it's, we'll, it, you know, the layout, I don't, I mean, I'm sure this is far more complex than what I can understand, but it seems odd to me that you would be laying off positions such as editors. Those seem to be mission critical to publishing books. And, and you know, if you lay off one editor and you have a new editor, like, I don't understand that necessarily. Well, it's it's the same thing that you see, you know, in the corporate world. When, I mean, there was a merger, you know, so HMH got bought up by HarperCollins. You know, at the time they said, we're not going to be letting anybody go. We're going to keep everybody on board. Um, you know, now that the dust has settled, oh, we're going to let people go. Um, you know, it, it happens in every merger. Like, I don't think anybody actually believes them at the get go, but they let the merger right. go through anyway. Um, and, you know, I think a, a lot could be said for, you know, like senior editors, you know, obviously get paid a lot more than a, a junior, you know, somebody coming through the door. Um, you know, that's another way for them to, you know, to get their, their bottom line down a little bit. They get rid of some of the people that they're paying a lot. They replace them with somebody that they're paying a little, um, you know, that's going to be with them for the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years or whatever. And, you know, get, hopefully they, they are. But, you know, I think there's there's a lot of that going on, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so aside from that, um, I, I went to a, a really cool event. Um, it was in Merrick, Ma- uh, Massachusetts. Uh, Christopher Golden at his local library he had a Halloween, um, like a book festival thing. And honestly, like I've been to a bunch of these and, you know, usually you get, you know, 20, 30 people that show up and, you know, a couple tables of authors and stuff. And this was a monster event. I mean, there were probably, if I had to guess, maybe 50 authors there, probably 500 to 1,000 people actually showed up at this tiny wow. little library in the middle of nowhere. Um you know, like I was really impressed and apparently this is, this is Chris's local library. So he's been doing this for you know, a number of years and just year after year, it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, kudos to Chris for, for putting it together and keeping it going like that. I mean, I was, just, I was really impressed with just the, the turnout, the people that were there and just overall how it, how it all came together. Nice. Nice. Congrats to Chris. That's really cool to hear. Yeah. What are you up to? Well, I got back from California. I was at the crypto business conference uh, run by Michael Stelzner, who does Social Media Examiner. So it was uh, it was really cool to kind of hear where uh, some emerging trends are happening, which uh, ties nicely into a bit of a news story we were emailing about <laughs> earlier this week, which is uh, Ingram Spark purchasing uh, Book.io. Uh, I'm afraid I, I can have this conversation, but if I do, we're never going to get Ingram Spark as a sponsor. <laughs> 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 well, what's your gut say about about something like that? I mean, go go ahead and say it. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I, I'd rather hear it. You know, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna be perfectly honest. Like this, to me, this seems like someone in Ingram is like, um, our business uh, is <laughs> our business is dying. Um, what do we do? And someone's like, I don't know. I heard something about these NFT things. Good, good. Go out and buy a company that's making NFT books. Like that's kind of how it feels to me. I have I have no insight. I have no one. In, I don't know anyone at the company. Um, but I don't consider Ingram to be a really forward-focused uh, <laughs> futurist type of company, and and the fact that they're buying up an NFT book marketplace, I just I, I don't get it. I mean, Ingram is in has never been in digital. I mean, 
you know, I, and I know they're trying to tie, you know, they're trying to tie this sort of mint and print as like this idea. And I'm like, I don't know who's asking for this. Like, are, are there readers who are, are, are like demanding NFT books with, that come with a paperback? Like, I don't know. I just don't know where it's coming from. It, to me, it seemed like out of left field and it doesn't really seem, it just doesn't seem like it's something people want. Well, I, I, I'm totally on the fence about it. Like, I'm, obviously, I'm following all the news stories. I, I love the idea of a, an NFT book, you know, and, and an ebook that could be sold over and over again, and that author getting paid every time that it happens. Um, you know, we, you know, honestly, that's even different than the print model. You know, like I walk into used bookstores all the time, and I see my titles in there, and I'm not getting a dime from any of those. Um, so this would actually be a, an improvement on that because the author is is actually getting paid on it. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I, I kind of know where, how you feel about this. Um, so you believe that NFTs are going to work out in the end for music, right? Like you feel that music is a, a valid market or product for NFTs. As of now, I mean, I reserve the right to change my mind as I learn stuff, but that's what <laughs> it looks like right now. Yeah. All right. And what do you, how do you feel about artwork? So pictures and, and things like that with NFTs? Yeah. I mean, that's been proven. So like the, the artwork and the music's proven. And I think especially for music, the reason that's the case is because it's it's not a behavioral change. Like if you if you listen to Spotify, then listening to a music N NFT on your phone isn't any different. Whereas going from reading a paperback book to reading an NFT on a device is completely different. Okay, um, so so you don't actually think that this is going to work for books? Like, do you do you feel that there will be a resale of eBooks at some point, and like that as an NFT will actually work, or is it the the bundling together of print and ebook that you, you see as a problem? So there's there's two things here, and I know Joanna disagrees with me. We're we're having some private conversations about this. <laughs> I I don't think. I don't think ebook. I don't think NFT books as ebooks. Uh, I don't think there's any. I don't see that going mainstream. I mean, you you know right now. I mean, we have just gotten to the point where people are willing to read on devices like on Kindles, right? I mean, there's still purists who will not read on anything but paper or will listen to an audiobook. So now you're asking someone to to read an NFT on a on a on a reader or on their phone. Like I, I just think that's highly unlikely. The second problem, and this is something I just learned recently, and it's, it's a bit frightening. The secondary royalties are optional on marketplaces. Those are not baked into the smart contract. So I think we originally thought that if you create an NFT that you would earn secondary royalties forever on that. And that is, that's a cultural assumption. That's not a technical specification. And that is just hitting the music uh, industry right now. There's a, a Magic Eden, a Solana marketplace that just decided they're making secondary roy uh, royalties optional. So if you buy an NFT on their marketplace, you can uncheck the royalty box and the original creator doesn't get a dime from that secondary sale. Wow. Okay. Well, all this stuff is always kind of wild west. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my gut honestly says that it, you know, the consumers can always take the easiest way out on, on everything. Um, and we've got obviously big corporations in, involved in all of this. And right now, if you, if you buy an ebook on your, your Kindle or whatever, your Kobo, whatever device you have, um, you're technically not buying it, you're licensing it. Um, so you don't own it. They can pull it off at, at any point. And that's evidenced by, you know, like an indie author finds a typo in his, his ebook, he goes on or he or she goes on there and they, they change it in KDP and you get a, a forced update that you really don't even see um, on your device. Like they're able to go in there and make that change, you know, without 
you know, any type of consent, which means they can pull it off of your device just as easily. Um, they're making a lot of money from licensing all the, this content. And everybody's kind of used to this particular ecosystem. We're all using Kobo or we're all using Kindle. Like I couldn't name another one if I, my life depended on it. And I'm sure they're out there. Um, so like that entire thing would have to be flipped on its head in order for NFTs to become a, a thing, meaning either Amazon and all these other guys would have to adopt it, which I don't see any reason why they would, because I think they're better off with the licensing model, um, or some third party disruptor would have to come out of nowhere and basically create an entire ecosystem, a marketplace, a device, and all these different things for NFTs. And then the public, the public would actually have to buy into that to the point where it overtakes this other market. And like, I just don't see that happening. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it is so early in, in all of this stuff. Um, it, it's fascinating to, to watch. Yeah, it really is. And I think, too, like, you know, the last slide I'll share on it, because I know it's not really core to our listeners all that much. But, you know, if you look at the at what Amazon has done, they they took a loss, not not just in in books, but they took a loss in their entire platform for years before they before they made a profit. I mean, they were they were selling Kindles under what it cost them to make it. It was a lo- the Kindle was a loss leader for years and years because the long term play was building the ecosystem and keep, keeping people inside it. So, if you're a Kindle reader and that's how you consume books. Whether you own them or lease them, if you finish a book and you tap a button and the next book shows up on your device and you read it, that's a hard behavior to change. I mean, Amazon spent millions of dollars and years building that ecosystem, and that's why. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm curious to see where it goes. Yeah, we'll see. One, one more thing before we take care of some business here. It's not really an announcement, but I, uh, I got a sneak peek into the new AutoCrit platform that's coming out in a few weeks. It's amazing. Uh, we'll talk more about it once it comes out. Uh, but Jocelyn shared a few things with me that I, I, I promise I wouldn't divulge, but it's looking good. So uh, keep your ears open for that. It's going to be pretty cool. Uh, as far as uh, partners and stuff go, we got to remember, if you are looking for a new website, uh, head on over to wordandpixel.com. Uh, they can take care of you there. Uh, our spiffy new website is it was done by them. And also our friends over there at Kobo Writing Life, they empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands so you can set your own price, keep all your rights, and all of that without any exclusivity. And you can get started today at KoboWritingLife.com. And that brings us to our guest this week, J.D., all right. We've got Wanda Morris coming on. She's a former attorney turned writer. Her debut novel was called All Her Little Secrets. I garnered glowing reviews and was named one of the best books of 2021. Um, she's back with her latest, which is called Anywhere You Run, and it releases um, October 25th. Here she is, Wanda Morris. Wanda, I have to start the interview with an apology. I've never done this before. But uh, you're now on the board of ITW, which means you have to deal with J.D. Barker personally. So I'm sorry. JD is great by me. Uh, No apologies needed. He is a great guy and a fantastic author. So, no apologies. (laughs) I have to take a shot at him when I get the chance, right? (laughs) Uh, Were you at Thriller Fest uh, this, this past spring? I was. Yes, I was. I thought so. We may have had a brief. A brief hello or something. I vaguely remember because I was there too, but I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. So uh, we'll just leave it as fate that you end up on the podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I, uh, I'm so excited to talk to you about uh, Anywhere You Run. You have a new book coming out October 25th, and I could not put this thing down. Um, why don't you sit the table for us and then we can talk about it? 
thank you so much for that, Jay. So yeah, all her little, all her little secrets. No, that was last year's book. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anywhere you run, I apologize. Cut that out. Um, <laughs> Anywhere you run is um, what I like to describe as a coming of age story of two young women um, just at the cusp of the civil rights movement. Um, And despite all the body count in the book, it really is a book about family and love and um, two young women finding their voice and and their place in the world. Um, The book opens with um, the murder of three civil rights activists, um, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, who were in Mississippi trying to help Blacks secure the right to vote. And against this backdrop, Violet Richards is also brutally attacked and she kills her attacker but she takes off running before the police can find her. And she heads off to a small rural town in Georgia. When the police show up at her sister's door looking for her, her sister Marigold figures, I might get pulled into this thing too. And she has some secrets of her own. So she heads up North, she runs away too. But what the women don't realize is that their problems are only beginning because there's a man from Mississippi who knows what happened and he has some dark secrets of his own and he is hot on the trail to find the women. It's wonderful. I mean, I, um, I have to read a lot of thrillers for this podcast and, and this book was such a unique, refreshing, different take on the thriller um, and I, I don't, you wouldn't know this, but uh, I'm not from Cleveland, but I live here now. And so, uh, and again, listeners, we won't spoil anything um, and anything major, but uh, bouncing back and forth between Jackson, Mississippi and Cleveland and, and the small town in Georgia was just um, fascinating to me. In fact, there was one passage I wanted to ask you about uh, as it pertains to Cleveland, because it seemed like you had a really good knowledge of the city. Uh, Mm -hmm. The passage is, a cat that looks like me can't walk around Little Italy or certain parts of the West Side, but white folks can go anywhere they damn well please. So uh, have you been to Cleveland? Have you lived in Cleveland? How did you you get that nuance to research in there? I was born and raised in Cleveland. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've lived in Georgia now for, gosh, 30 years. I, you know, I haven't lived in Cleveland since I went off to college, but yeah. Um, I, you know, I wanted, I wanted a location that would be, you know, traditionally thought of as juxtaposed to the South. So, um, you would think that these women, um, having grown up in the Jim Crow South, going to the North would provide a sense of freedom from, um, you know, the segregation and what they were facing. But in fact, once uh, Marigold gets to, to the North, um, she suddenly realizes mm, there are still some parallels between the North and the South. Um, and 
so I, I wound up picking my my hometown because I knew I wouldn't have to research it that <laughs> in that great a detail because I was already intimately familiar with it. I know that was kind of the lazy man's way of of, <laughs> of putting in, you know, a location. But um, but yeah, I, I grew up in the city, so I, I did have some knowledge of places like that. Well, I mean. Yeah, there's nothing more authentic than your own experience. I mean, when you can inject that into your writing, right? And Mm -hmm. as I was reading the book, um, I was having a conversation with one of my uh, African-American friends. and Mm -hmm. And I shared that passage because I think it was right around the time the Feast of the Assumption was happening. And she was like, oh, yeah, we we never went there. And I was like... You know, that's, I mean, because it's not my experience. I'm, I'm a white middle-aged guy. I'm not from Cleveland. I was like, what do you mean? And then we got into this deeper conversation. I was like, wow, there's a lot of history there that I'm not even aware of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting because I did try and do some of that with um, each of the cities because the story starts in Jackson, Mississippi. And then one sister flees to Cleveland, Ohio, and another one flees to a fictional town, uh, a fictional small town in Georgia. But that town is loosely based on a, on a real town. And um, so while, you know, the sister Marigold is up north and facing some discrimination, Violet is in a small Georgia town and you know, no spoiler alerts. She winds up in in a restaurant where blacks don't have to go through the back door to be served. And so it was kind of my way of kind of tipping those things on its head, because um, while restaurants like that in the South were very few and far between, occasionally you found um, uh, some business owners who, you know, bucked the, the Jim Crow South system. Yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking too as I'm reading it, like the the flower sisters, as I was calling them in my head as I was reading. Uh, you know, they they think they're so different, and yet the the path that they're following is so similar, and yet they're they're sort of separated from it. And and um, I think you did a, a just a masterful job of working the historical angle into that, creating that separation. Right? You know, back in the fifties or the sixties, people didn't they didn't have text messaging. They did they didn't have email. Um, so, for someone who's not an adult at that time, what kind of challenges did that pose for you as a writer? Wow, you know, interestingly enough, having the book set, you know. It, it, in a historical time period, did make things easier and more difficult. It was more difficult because I had to research like, well, how would somebody get from this point to that point? You know, you you had, you know, a few options. How would somebody, you know, reach out and contact somebody? Um, (laughs) If you read the book, you'll see that characters in my book make a lot of collect phone calls, (laughs) you know, in the before times when phones were connected to a wall. Um, And so in that regard, it was a little more difficult. It was easier in that um, the mystery, uh, the kind of puzzle part of the book was made easy because they didn't have cell phones and all this technology. So nobody could go and Google something and, you know, nobody had a cell phone where they could just pick up a phone and, you know, dial someone's number. You had to go and look for a phone booth. And at one point in the book, 
one of the characters is looking for a phone booth and, you know, the guy tells him, oh yeah, our phone booth's busted. So you got to go down, you know, a mile and a half um, if you want a phone. And so I wanted to um, lend authenticity to the book. Um, And so setting it historically uh, made that both easier and tougher in some regards. Yes, yes. Uh, I saw that you uh, tweeted recently about a uh, research trip to Savannah, which is kind, kind of doubled as an anniversary uh, celebration. Uh, <laughs> uh, is that, uh, did you go to Jackson? Did you go to Georgia? Um, how, did you do research for, for, uh, for this book? Yeah, so I did not go to Jackson. I talked to people who lived in Jackson, and there's just a small portion of the book that is based in Jackson because the two sisters wind up leaving. Um, But yeah, I usually do go to the places where um, uh, my books are set. And so that small town in Georgia, even though it's a fictional town, the name is fictional, I based it loosely on a town um, here in, in East Georgia and obviously um, um, Cleveland as well. But, you know, one of the reasons why I set the book in Jackson, um, it, it, it's interesting to go back, to step back for a minute. I started this book right after I had finished writing my debut novel, All Her Little Secrets. And we had just finished the 2020 election. And there was all this rancor about, you know, election fraud and states like Georgia and Texas were starting to enact um, state legislation that would make it more difficult for um, disenfranchised and elderly people to vote. And I thought, oh, it would be really interesting to do, you know, something around that topic. But I couldn't really find a contemporary entryway into a story like that. And then with all this noise here in Georgia about, you know, election fraud, I thought, why not go back to the origins of voting rights for Black people? And um, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was the legislation that gave um, Blacks and all people the right to vote. And I thought, oh, it would be pretty interesting to go back and explore um, the story from this angle. And so that's how I came to be. And Mississippi was one of those states where man, it was super, super tough um, if you were a Black person to try and vote. And remember, voting affects so much more than just the people you elect to govern you. You know, you can't serve on a jury if you are not registered to vote. And so there were ripple effects that if Black people couldn't vote, then that meant they couldn't serve on a jury, which means that by the time they got into court, you know, they were dead in the water um, because they didn't have a jury of peers that looked like them. And so I wanted to explore all of that in the book. And so that's why I kind of went to Jackson, because I knew that that was kind of a centerpiece where Megar Evers, um, you know, really started the voting movement. And then these three civil rights activists were murdered. They are trying to help secure the right to vote 
which in turn brought a national attention to uh, voting rights in Mississippi. Yes. That's the long way of explaining <laughs> why I came to set the story in Jackson initially. No, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, as a history buff, I, I could geek out with you all day long of, uh, about this. I, I absolutely love it. I want to dig into your process a little bit. So um, you, you mentioned that you sometimes will go on location to do research. What does your drafting slash revision process look like? Oh, it's messy, Jay. It's just one big old pile of mess. Now, seriously, I think that um, I always start out with the character. I know some people, you know, they kind of like, oh, I start out with an interesting plot and kind of plunk my characters in it. But if I don't have a really interesting character to follow through a story, then I have a hard time creating a plot. Um, because the character is the one who decides what decisions he or she will make in the story. And so it's kind of hard for me to figure out the plot if I don't know how they would react in certain situations. So I usually start out with a character in my head. Um, I tend to be an outliner rather than a pantser. Um, but I, you know, I don't do these Jeffrey Deaver 250 page, you know. He's legendary for that, isn't he? <laughs> right, right. He is like the master at that. No, I usually start out with something very loose. We're talking like, you know, four or five pages where I kind of know the major tent poles in the story. Um, so I kind of know where the story is going. And then um, I take a yellow legal pad and a blue G2 Pilot <laughs> gel pen. And I start the very first draft by hand, longhand. I always start the, I know wow. it's old school. I think it is something about by the time the thought runs from my brain down through my right arm into my fingertips, it makes a little more sense than it does up in my head. But I do, I start out um, every first draft in longhand. And then once I get um, a substantive chunk of the story, um, I will then transfer that into the computer. And I'm editing as I'm going along. That's why I said it's messy. So as I'm putting it into the computer, it's different from what is longhand. And so I'm editing as I put it into the computer. And then once I have that, I pull that down, print that out. And then that's the draft that I work off of because I do the edits um, in longhand. But that time I have to use a red pen. You see what I'm saying? The edit pen. <laughs> I have to use the red G2 pilot pen. So, um, but yeah, I, I try and just get the story down because it's usually very, very messy. Character names change, places change. Um, but I want to make sure that what I'm thinking in my head, I capture on paper um, because I can always go back and edit it later. Is this first draft in cursive and complete sentences as well? Um, sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, not always in... Um, uh, incomplete sentences. I tend to um, lean heavy on dialogue. 
And so um, there's lots of dialogue with, you know, floating bodies that have no description and things like that. So there'll be some sections of the book when I go back to look at it and start revisions. And I'm like, who is this person <laughs> talking? You who know? said this? <laughs> right. Who is this? They're just bodies floating around. Um, but all that kind of comes together in the editing process. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh is there a particular time and or place where you prefer to do your writing? Is it different from first drafting versus revision? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question because I learned something about myself recently. I usually write right here where I'm sitting, which is, um, you know, like a little room off of our, our living room and that, you know, I've converted and forbade everybody to come in here. Um but I usually write better in the mornings. My brain is fresher. Um, I can't really write when I'm tired and I'm usually tired in the evenings. I still have a 13 year old son at home. Um, so I, I usually try and get to the desk first thing in the morning after I drop him off at school and then write for several hours. And then in the afternoon, I'll do emails and things like that. But on this third book that I've been writing, um, I got to a point in um, the book where I was just kind of stuck. And I was like, what, what do I, you know, where does this go? And that trip that you referenced, the trip to Savannah that I recently took, um, once I got down there, it was just something about being in that location and, you know, the sights and sounds and smells of Savannah, I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly what I need to do. And I pounded out maybe like five or 6,000 words one day just from being in there. And so I was kind of like, maybe I need to switch it up from time to time. Um, but that worked out really well for me because I, you know, was sitting here in this room and I was just kind of like stuck on pause. So <laughs> it kind of helped me get unplugged. Yeah. Uh, so as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about um, this idea that, that came to me. Um, I'd love to get your opinion on it. It, it sounds as though you have a, a several hours during your day that are optimal. And um, so you know, even if you had, say, 10 hours to write, quote unquote, write, it wouldn't matter because you have sort of these three and you start getting tired. W would you say that's yeah. accurate? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it kind of depends on where I am in the book, too, because I optimally, yes, write in early morning. I feel fresher. I feel like things come to me. Now, for my second book, Anywhere You Run, I was on a deadline and I was like three days out and I was like, uh, I don't like this passage. So I was rewriting chapters at midnight. So <laughs> I think it kind of depends on where I am. But yeah, I think the optimal time for me is early in the morning. But I think it also, and, and this is why I, I don't know about you, but I hate when people uh, give you rules. And then like, if you write, you're a writer, you always have to do X, Y, and Z. You know, you have to write every day or, you know, you have to, you know, type in your first draft. And so 
because I hate people giving me those rules, I try not to impose them on myself. And so while I say that, you know, I do better in the mornings, I try not to let that limit me. Because certainly when I'm on a deadline, I write whenever I need to write to get the, the deadline met. It sounds like you're a very self-aware writer that you, you sort of know where your strengths are. Uh, I, well, okay. <laughs> if, you, if you say so, Jay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what about you? Do you find those times when you're writing and you're just kind of like, hmm, what are words? Like, how do I do this again? And, you know, someone asked me recently, you know, was it easier to write the second book? And I was like, no, like, I mean, the first book took me a lot longer because I just didn't know how to write a book. Like I was just stringing along sentences, but you know, there was no pacing, there was no characterization. So I had to learn how to write a book with the first one. But with the second one, for me, it was still tough because I still had to figure out things like who is this character and what does she really want? And, you know, what's driving the tension in this story and things like that, which those are the, that's the hard work that you put into a story. Um, it's not so much just the sitting down and typing, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You're such a prolific author. No. You feel differently. No, but. I, I think there's some, I think there's some universal experiences in being an author. And one of the ones that I've had, and I've um, talked to enough authors to know it's, I'm, I'm not the only one is uh, you sit, you put your butt in the chair and you do the writing. And at the moment you think this is the worst drivel. Like no one's going to want to read this. Yes. It's terrible. And then I come back to it in revisions and I can't tell the difference between those days and the days I was like, oh, this is a bestseller. This, yes. is, the, this is the best Isn't thing ever. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so true. That's so, so very true. I remember turning in a first draft of Anywhere You Run and thinking, OK, here's where the publisher will tell me. Mm-hmm. we'd like our advance back. You know, it's like, this is like the worst piece of dribble, like you said, but, but you're right. You, you know, you just, you get in there and you do the hard work. And, you know, I think for different writers, you know, different things are harder for you than others. Um, you know, I, I struggle with um, characterization. And so I labor over it because I once had um, someone tell me, your characters don't behave like people would behave. That just doesn't make any sense for anyone to do that. And so for me, that stuck. And so I just labor over, you know, making sure that my characterizations are, are on point. Um, you know, but for somebody else, it might be dialogue for somebody else. It might be pacing, whatever. And, you know, I always tell writers, you know, find that thing that you do good in your writing um, and do that, but also work on the stuff that you don't do so good, because that's what's going to make your writing shine, too. I Maybe it's just me and, you know, kind of my, you know, neuroses about. <laughs> getting things, you know, right. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's too much information for you <laughs> listeners. <laughs> 
Well, you you seem to also be in a constant eternal pursuit of of the craft. Uh, you're a member of many of the professional organizations out there for writers. Uh, you're a graduate of Robert McKee's Story Seminar. Uh, mm-hmm. I would love to know um, when you, when you walked out of that Story Seminar, what what changed for you? What was what's different? Were there any sort of light bulb moments? Um, yeah, I remember sitting in there and thinking, what am I doing? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Wanda, why are you here? Like, these people are like real writers. And at the time that, um, I did it, I was, um, I was working and I was on, um, a business trip on the West coast. And, you know, he only gives those seminars, you know, several times throughout the year. And I'd had heard so much about it. And, you know, they they lean towards screenwriters. But I, you know, I always thought I like movies. And so, you know, why I would think that it would be kind of much the same. So um, I was looking into taking the course and the only time that I could do it was when I was on this business trip on the West Coast and it was on a weekend. So, you know, to my bosses, I was not taking time out of my job, but it was on that weekend. And I thought, okay, so I'll just stay over for the weekend and do this and this will be fine. And I'll sit there and, and I'll soak up. Well, the first hour, I just kept looking around because there were these screenwriters in there. Um, some of whom I had heard. And then there was an actor whose name escapes me right now. I can't think of his name. It'll come to me later. Um, But there was an actor in there also taking this course. And I kept thinking, Wanda, get your butt up and get out of here. Don't even ask for a refund. Just go, run, do not walk. Um, But I stayed there and I tell you, Jay, it was some of the best learning that that I ever got. I mean, um, you know, Robert McKee kind of stands on stage and, you know, he kind of talks, but the, the true learning comes in, um, the movie clips that he shows. And then, you know, he talks about what made this particular scene work and, you know, what didn't work in a particular scene. And I, you know, it gave me fresh eyes on how to look at a movie And my thinking was always, if I can recreate what I see on the scene on the page, then maybe I'm golden. Um, That that took a long time. But um, but it it really was in um, the, the learning of, you know, what makes good dialogue. You know, it's not just a matter of the words that people are speaking to move the scene along. But, you know, how does it sound to the ear? And what does it make you think about? And so I try and be mindful of that when I'm writing um, my novels as well. It's like, you know, not only does this sentence move the plot along, but how does it how does it sing into the ear? And, you know, is this a sentence that somebody will relate to or is this a sentence that somebody will say, oh, yeah, I I was like that. Um, And so that's how I try and write. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. I love your growth mindset. I love that you're, you're a, a learner. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and I'm still learning. I mean, yeah, I've got two books, 
but I'm still like reading and learning. And, you know, I still ask people, you know, gosh, I really loved how you did that. You know, what made you come up with that? Because I think, like you said, we're all kind of learning this craft um, that we love um, and we participate in. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we pull the conversation to a close, I have one last, hopefully fun question for you. Uh, Wanda, what are you most excited about on your horizon, whether that's something personal or professional or industry-wide? Uh, what are you excited about? Oh, wow. That is a really good question. You know what? I'm excited to see the reaction that people might have to Anywhere You Run, because it is so different from my first book. I mean, it's historically set. Um, it deals with three different points of view. Um, and so I really did stretch myself with this one and I hope it paid off. So I'm, I'm excited to see if people respond to it and it's a book that, that they enjoy. And before we uh, wrap up the Wanda Morris interview, just want to give you a quick reminder that if you need to create professional print books and ebooks easily with the all-in-one book writing software, you can do that with Atticus. It comes with a book editor, a word count, goal tracking, cloud storage, and you can do all that in three steps or less. And you can find out more about Atticus at atticus.io. All right, JD, I, uh, I love this conversation with Wanda. I didn't realize that she was born and raised in Cleveland. It has nothing to do with uh, the conversation, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, a, a takeaway, a thought, an idea, something to cut your ear? Honestly, like I, I read the book um, and I, I actually blurbed it and I was completely blown away and impressed by the fact that she was, you know, she used period language, um, which, you know, when you when you've got black people in the South in the 60s, you know, like she did not shy away from the language. She didn't shy away from the, the racism, any of those things. It's it's all in there. Um, and, and I know like in speaking to her, uh, you know, off, off podcast or off camera, off microphone, whatever you want to call it. Um, like she got a lot of pushback on that from her publisher, you know, like they wanted that toned down and, you know, she fought to keep it in there. And, you know, that's, that it's so important, I think for that kind of thing to be correct, you know, like you can sugarcoat it, but like if everybody starts sugarcoating it, then everybody's going to forget. And, you know, that's how history repeats itself. And we, you know, we, we've seen that over and over again in, in other aspects. And this is just, it's one of those things that shouldn't be forgotten. So it's, it's very cool that she's got it in there um uh, did she talk at all about her original her first book um in the tv little show bit. yeah okay little bit. yeah i don't know if she would um, mention this I, I only heard about half the interview um because we kind of had to rush in here um but i just saw an announcement from deadline um her first book all our little secrets is actually coming out on showtime um which oh, i thought cool. was kind of cool yeah 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 this was um i know every once in a while you get one of those books that surprises you uh this one kind of blew me away, and and just because I didn't, I hadn't read her first book, so I didn't, I didn't really know much about her as an author, and uh, this was, I, this is in one of my, this is definitely my top five books of the year. This was a phenomenal book. It was, it was well written. The pacing was was excellent, and uh, kudos to Wanda. Like this was just an extremely well well written book and entertaining. And as I said to her in the interview, it's a different kind of thriller, and I think that's. You know, that's one of the reasons why we meet, why we need more diversity and we need more voices in, in publishing is because there's, you know, the, there's different types of thrillers. And uh, this one was just phenomenal. 
Yeah, that honestly was one of the things that jumped out at, out at me too. It's it's a very different book. I mean, it still has that you know thriller type formula in there. It still has the pacing of a thriller, um, but obviously told in a very different environment. Um, and you know, I've, I've got, geez, I'm looking over at my my coffee table right now. There's probably thirty to forty books on there, and I can guarantee if I picked up five of them, they would probably have an extremely similar plot. Um, because you know, all the publishers are looking for the same plot. All the writers are trying to write to that, you know, that, that marketplace. Um, you know, and like, she just kind of came out and did her own thing, which I I thought was really cool. Um, you know, she had mentioned in her process that she starts with a character and and I'm wondering if that's, you know, part of why this book feels that way. You know, a lot of thriller authors in general, they, they tend to start with their idea, you know, like, Oh, here's a really cool idea for a thriller. This is where my twist is going to be. And then they kind of work backwards, backwards from there, you know, and she actually started with the character. She created her people first and, you know, basically developed them and then her, her scenario came second. And I, and I think that you can feel that in the book. Yeah, you certainly can. And I wanted to ask you something about the, the research component, because we talked about something in this interview that I hadn't thought about in any of the other interviews, which is the role that your upbringing plays in your ability to write a setting. And here's what I mean by that. If you had an upbringing where you spent a significant amount of time in one place, how, how does that affect the settings that you write? And, and can, you, can you just tap into that in sort of a, an innate sense as opposed to, to doing research? So as far as what, like where you grew up, do you find that working its, those, those streets, those people, those places working its way into your writing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think we all kind of pull from that. You know, I, I know whenever I write a child character, you know, I'm, I'm pulling from my own childhood. I'm pulling from the places where I, I played, you know, the playgrounds, the friends' houses, the neighborhoods, the backyards, those kind of things. Um, I think in order to be genuine, like that's where it really comes from and that's where it tends to feel real. And, and I think you can research your way out of that. I think if you do enough research, you can pretty much write a story that's based anywhere. Um, but, you know, in order to do that, you know, you have to basically think about all the, the things that you absorb. You know, it, it, let's say you're 10 years old, you grew up, spend the first 10 years in the same house when you're a kid. You know, think of all the things that you absorbed as that child. You know, every single aspect of your backyard, every, you know, the, the weather, um, you know, the airport that's two miles away, the trucks that race by on the highway right down the street, um, you know, the, the forest that's, you know, a quarter mile away that your friend's playing, like all these different aspects of it, it all, you know, gets buried in your subconscious somewhere and you can pull from all that. Um, and, and I think it's just, it's a lot more layered, a lot more colorful than if you were to try and make it all up and, and you can make it all up. Um, but it's just, it's obviously very difficult to do. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that was, what was interesting is it seems like, um, you know, Wanda Wanda left Cleveland, uh, where uh, a lot of the uh, book is set, uh, to go to college and really hasn't lived there since. And and uh, that resonated with me because I left Pittsburgh uh, for college and haven't lived there since. Yet I find that when I when I go and I sit down, and I'm I'm creating a scene, or even if it's something, it's a template that's going to come up later. I'm always tapping into that, like you said, those streets and those friends and the in those places. So. It was an interesting juxtaposition between upbringing and research. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get a lot of people mention, um, you know, the way I, I call out Chicago and the way I describe it in my 4MK series. And it's because I live there. You know, I lived in that area. Um, you know, and she has a broken thing where her heart should be. I set that in Brentwood, um, which is right outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and I, you know, I lived there as well. You know, so I was able to describe the the neighborhood to a T. Like on, on other books, you know, that I've done where I basically just pick a spot on a map. You know, like, hey, I'd love to write a book in Detroit. You know, so I jump on Google. Um, I don't get those kind of comments. I mean, I think I throw 
given enough material in order to, to ground the novel and make it feel realistic. You know, the streets are real, the places, buildings, things like that. Um, but that one little spark that you you get, you know, by actually living in that place, you know, you, I, I'm not able to duplicate it, at least to the point where people mention it. Yeah, I guess the flip side is that only the people in those cities mention it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. So it doesn't hurt you all that much, right? Unless you're uh, you're trying to corner one particular market or one region. But yeah, most people don't know the difference between those. So, nope. Uh, well, cool. Um, I know that uh, we have a guest next week who's a buddy of mine. So I figure I'd do the teaser for him. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. So yeah. let's try this the other way around. Jay, yeah. who do we have on next week? <laughs> next week, we have uh, David Cadavi on. And I met David at the uh, CEX conference in Phoenix in May. And we really uh, struck up a, a friendship. And uh, he is he's I think he's been on Joanna's show. And he wrote a, a nonfiction book called uh, Mind Management, Not Time Management. And one of the things about David that really caught my ear, and I figured out oh, he'd be great to have on the podcast, knowing how you like to your guerrilla marketing tactics, is he got his book uh, on a billboard in Times Square. So, <laughs> so that's a little teaser. You'll have to listen to the interview next week to to find out the whole story on that. But uh, pretty interesting guy. So I'm looking forward to it. Nice. Can't wait. Yeah. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.